Today's scripture reading is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verses 10 through 17. It is in page 606 of your Bible. Listen for the word of the Lord. The lover of money will not be satisfied with money, nor the lover of wealth with gain. This also is vanity. When goods increase, those who eat them increase. And what gain has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of laborers, where they eat little little or much, but the surfeit of the rich will not let them sleep. There is a grievous ill that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owners to their hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. Though they are parents of children, they have nothing in their hands. As they came from their mother's womb, So shall they go again, naked as they came. They shall take nothing for the toil, which they may carry away with their hands. This also is a grievous ill. Just as they came, so shall they go. And what gain do they have from toiling for the wind? Besides, all of their days they eat in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and resentment. The New Testament reading is from Mark. It is uh, chapter 12, verses 41 through 44 on page 924. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people came, put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which were worth one penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had, all she had to live on. The word of the Lord. Let us bow together in prayer. Holy God, in the quietness of this place, we pray you to send your Holy Spirit to us, that the words we have read and heard may be engraved upon our hearts, and that we may be moved by your Spirit and by your words to live lives that are gracious and generous and faithful. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Coming out of seminary back in 1971, I had resolved that I would not speak of it in the pulpit. Money, that is. Maybe it was because most of the so-called stewardship sermons that I had heard growing up seemed more like commercial interruptions to the regularly scheduled program. Or maybe it was because some of them were just downright offensive. 
Or maybe it was because I knew that a lot of people think that money is just too personal a matter to be discussed in public and certainly should not be discussed in church. I knew that Jesus had talked more about money and possessions than about anything else, including salvation. But I expect it was no more popular in his day than it is in ours. And truth be told, I think some of my misgivings were due to the fact that I just have a sense of inadequacy when it comes to talking about money matters. Everywhere I've ever been, there have always been people who knew more about budgets and finance and stewardship than I knew, and it just seemed best if I avoided the topic rather than appearing to be a little leaguer playing in the major leagues. But thanks to an elder in that first pastorate I had, a, a pharmacist by the name of Ed Edmondson, my attitude toward talking about money and and, and the attitude toward money itself changed. And I came to believe that it is in the context of talking about money that we have the best opportunity to talk about the good news of the gospel and its power to transform our lives. Now, I know it's never easy to talk about money and stewardship because these things always seem to create tension in our homes, at work, and especially in the church for some reason. That's nothing new. The writer of Ecclesiastes knew about it many years before any of us were around. He said, the lover of money will not be satisfied with money, the lover of wealth with gain. Sweet is the sleep of laborers, whether they eat little or much, but the excesses of the rich will not let them sleep. Now, I know. I know that some of us would gladly risk a few sleepless nights to have great wealth. I understand that. But studies show that great wealth is not always a blessing. Researchers at Northwestern University did a study of the winners of state lotteries who had won tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. And while all of them said that Winning was very exciting for them at the time. They confessed that their contentment with life in general actually diminished. And the reason was that winning was such an emotional high for them that everything else suffered by comparison. Psychologists call it the adaptation level phenomenon. And almost no one escapes it. It simply means the more we have, the more we want. For example, I would guess that most people today, not all, but most people today probably have more disposable income than we had five or ten years ago. But for some reason, we don't feel better off. We think we're losing ground. Because as the standard of living continues to rise, we adapt to whatever that level is and we strive even higher. The more we have, the more it takes to make us happy. I learned that so well from our children when they were little. When they were really young, I mean three, four, five years old, they would ask for some candy. And I could give them two or three, four of my M&Ms and they'd be satisfied. 
Well, then somebody told them that you could go to the store and buy a packet of M&Ms that would have 30 or 40 of those little things in it. And that's what they had to have. Well, today they want all of my two-pound family pack. <laughs> the more they have, the more they want. I'm going to have to start keeping it under lock and key. Sometimes our attitude toward our possessions is just like that. We all want to improve our station in life, but if we seek fulfillment through the things we own, it's always always going to take more and more and more and more to make us happy. And then there's the thing called the relative deprivation principle. And that simply means that our happiness is often related to what we see other people having. We, when I was growing up, we used to call it keeping up with the Joneses. It means that if we have and can do what other people have and do, we're going to be generally happy. But if we begin to think even for a moment that somebody down the street has more or gets to do more than us, we can make ourselves miserable. I remember several years ago, there was a city council in this state that voted to give their police officers a substantial pay raise much greater than they voted to give their firefighters. You wouldn't believe the harsh words and the threats of litigation that came out of that decision. It was beyond anything that you could expect or predict. It's just too common for us to compare what we have with what other people have. And again, the writer of Ecclesiastes nailed it. He says, I have learned why people work so hard to succeed. It's because they envy the things their neighbors have. But it is useless. It is like chasing the wind. So where's the good news? Where is there a word that can set us free from life on the treadmill? A word that can give us life that is both authentic and abundant? Well, I can tell you this morning that you will not find that word on the pages of the Wall Street Journal. You will not find it in the financial section of the Post and Courier. And with all due respect to the profession, you will not hear it from your financial advisors. The truly liberating word can come only from the one who has lived and walked and worked among us who has the power to give life as no one else can give it, the one who said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they, they shall be satisfied. Now that's not just a sweet, sentimental little saying. It is absolute truth. Jesus was no ivory tower philosopher far removed from reality. Every day he rubbed shoulders with people in the streets and in the marketplaces. He knew how people struggled to meet their everyday obligations, how they faced day in and day out the, the hard economic realities under which most of them lived. And so when he called people to give up what they had and to follow him, 
He knew that he was asking them to do something that was terribly hard, something that was going to require a totally new orientation to their lives and toward their possessions. But the amazing thing is that many people followed him. And he still invites you and me today to follow him, knowing that it is a hard, hard calling. But it is still possible. How do we follow him? Well, first of all, I think by taking stock. Not buying stock, but taking stock. Doing some serious soul searching about our own lives. And if we do, my guess is that we will find that it has been true for most of us that the more we've had, the more it has taken to make us happy. We may realize how often we have acquired things, not because we needed them, but because we've seen someone else have them. That can be a sobering discovery. And that discovery can mark the beginning of real change for us, a change in our attitude toward our lives as well as a change in our attitude toward possessions. Secondly, we can remember remember that our value as human beings has absolutely nothing to do, nothing to do with how much we earn, how many hours we work, where we live, or the kind of car we drive. Our worth as human beings is determined solely by our having been created in the image of God, redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and called to live in obedience to God in a community of God's people. The third thing we can do is to avoid poor talk, or what some of my family members in Union County, North Carolina, used to call poor mouthing. It's not quite as gracious a term as poor talk, but you know what it is. It's what happens when conversations about economic issues turn into complaints about being underpaid and overtaxed and how high prices are just killing us all. Some people say that kind of talk's harmless. It's not. It's actually deadly. Because the more we complain, the more miserable we become. And worse, from the standpoint of Christian discipleship, poor mouthing or poor talk focuses our attention on ourselves and causes us to ignore the needs of others. I mean, if I complain enough about my car payments or my fuel costs or my food bills, it becomes a lot easier for me to forget that there's some people out there who don't have any transportation. People who have no heating and air conditioning in their homes. People who don't know where their next meal is going to come from. The fourth thing we can do, and maybe the most important, to realize the abundant life that's promised in the gospel is that we can practice generosity with our time and our talents and our financial resources. Mark tells the story of how Jesus was in the temple one day watching as the wealthy people made a big show of dropping their offerings in the temple offering plates. And then along came this poor widow who very quietly placed her two little copper coins in the plate. 
And knowing what that gift had cost the woman, Jesus said, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who contributed to the treasury because they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. It was a rainy Friday morning when Presbyterian pastor Ken Gibble and his little five-year-old daughter Katie were waiting in the Philadelphia airport to greet a refugee family they were helping to resettle. Katie's mother had made several stuffed animals for Katie to give the children in the family. And so they sat there and waited anxiously, wondering how it would go, what they would say, how the family would react. As they watched the river of passengers move through the concourse, they spotted their refugee family, strangers in a strange land, as fearful themselves as Ken and Katie were anxious. Well, Katie got up and went over and approached the children and handed the stuffed animals to them. And that sort of broke the ice and what followed was a very emotional scene with tears of, of joy and expressions of love and embraces of welcome. And after a while, they got the family to their new home and after sort of making sure that they were comfortable with their few possessions, Ken and Katie decided it was time to leave so the family could rest. Without any prompting at all, the two refugee children offered to Katie the little toys they had brought with them to this country from half a world away. Ken's first reaction was to say, oh no, Katie has more toys than she needs. These are all you have. But in remembering that moment, he said, somehow we knew that that was just the point. This was all these children had and it was all they had to give. And they needed to express their gratitude by giving these things to Katie. Like the woman in the temple, they cherished the privilege of giving what they had. And so we accepted their gifts. I doubt that they understood the power and the beauty of what they had done. But God knows Katie and I will never forget it. Those refugee children knew, just like the woman in the temple knew, giving our living is living. That's the strange power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is more blessed to give than to receive because it is in the giving that we begin to taste the abundant life that Christ promises as he frees us from our possessions and liberates us to practice the grace of generosity. And so I pray for all of you this morning as I pray for myself that God will give us grace to hear this word as good news as really good news, because that's what it is. That is, 
exactly what it is. Thanks be to God.